You're listening to Weekly Devotions with Pastor James, a podcast devoted to helping you with your walk with Jesus. We do this by looking at the scriptures through devotions and messages every week. For more information, you can find us at gardeningthewell.com and would love for you to connect with us over there. Uh, You can visit our blog, you can visit our bookstore, and you can connect with us and shoot us some feedback. Send us questions, maybe something you'd like to hear an episode on. And with that said, uh, let's jump into it today. So when you're thinking of a movie, TV show, what scenes stay with you the longest? What scenes bring up the most emotion, if you would, in a movie or a TV show? Many times, that scene is when somebody is leaving, when somebody is passing away, when the show is ending and it's the final. It is usually those scenes that bring up the most emotions or that stay with you the longest. For example, my mind goes to Star Wars, and I know that's the same, I know that's the place where your mind went as well when I started bringing up somebody passing away. So in Star Wars, right, in The Phantom Menace, we'll we'll include this one, right, a guy by the name of Qui-Gon Jinn, he gets killed, but his last words are to Obi-Wan Kenobi, Anakin is the chosen one, make sure he gets trained, right? I know you all know that movie by heart, right? You have no clue. But that is a scene that stays with you because his last words to make sure Anakin gets trained are very, very important for the rest of the movie series. And then you go forward a couple movies, right? Forward, backwards, but we won't get into that, right? And then you come to where Darth Vader. Now, even if you're not a Star Wars fan, you've at least heard of Darth Vader. Darth Vader has just saved his son Luke from the evil emperor, and now Darth Vader is dying, right? And so what does Darth Vader do? He looks his son into the eyes, son Luke, and goes, tell your sister she is right, there is good in me. At that, my wife is home crying because she always cries at that, right? But that is a final, those are the last words of Anakin Skywalker, right? Darth Vader to his son, tell your daughter that there is good in me. And it is those scenes of when somebody is leaving, when someone is passing away in a movie, a TV show, something along those lines, is that stays with you. Or when you do a comedy movie and they really play up somebody dying and it's so bad that it stays with you because they tried doing it funny. It is those scenes. And you're probably thinking, well, Pastor, why why are you bringing this all up? Uh, It's why you come to church. It's because this is where we find ourselves in 2 Timothy this morning. This is Paul's scene. Paul finally turns the camera upon himself. You see, throughout this letter, I've told you that these are the last words of the Apostle Paul. This is Paul's farewell scene, if you would. And Paul does something here that he has not done in this letter at all. And I'm going to tell you about that in a moment. But in doing so, Paul gives us something amazing. Paul gives us some amazing advice. He gives us great counsel. For you see, Paul is about to tell you how to live and leave a legacy of fulfillment. Did you get that? Paul is about to tell us how to live and leave a legacy of fulfillment behind you. So, we got to get going this morning. I have three points for you. The present, the past, and the future, okay? Those are three points. And so we have to start with the present. Paul says this in verse 6. 
He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. That is Paul's present state, right? Now, with that in mind, you've probably heard something along these lines before. How many of you ever heard this? A person's last words are very telling to that person. Have you ever heard something along those lines? Most of us have. Right? They tell us about who that person was, what they believed in, what they were like. Very important piece of information to them. But do you know the last words of anybody? How many of you know Napoleon? Well, not know him, but know of Napoleon, right? Many of us, ready? Here we go. Napoleon said this before he died. I die before my time, and my body will be given back to earth to become the food of worms. Such is the fate which so soon awaits the great Napoleon. Well, it doesn't sound like Napoleon was looking forward to death there, was he? Or how many know of Gandhi? Right? Gandhi, we all, you know, put Gandhi up, right? Gandhi said this not long before he died. My days are numbered. I'm not likely to live very long. Perhaps a year or a little more. For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in a slow of despond. All about me is darkness. I'm praying for light. Gandhi, before his death, he goes, darkness all around me. And then I came across what a 19th century French statesman said. You probably don't know him. His name is Talleyrand. He wrote this on a piece of paper on his nightstand near his bed. He said this, behold, 83 years passed away. What cares? What agitation? What anxieties? What ill will? What sad complications? And all without other results, except great fatigue of mind and body, and a profound sentiment of discouragement with regard to the future, and disquiet with regard to the past. Wow. Then you come to a man by the name of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a great preacher and revivalist of the 1700s. He had these words from his deathbed. I go to my everlasting rest. My sun has risen, shone in his setting nay, is about to rise and shine forever. I have not lived in vain. And though I could live to preach Christ 1,000 years, I die to be with him, which is far better. So who do you think had a better outlook on death? George Whitfield or Napoleon or this French statement guy, right? George Whitfield did, right? He's like, I'm going to meet Jesus. Napoleon's like, my body's going to be eaten by worms. The French statement's like, life was just horrible. Discouragement in the future, disquiet from my past. A little bit of a difference in those words from those men. The reason being is the person, the work of Jesus. You see, Jesus brings a hope that only he can bring in this life and for the next. It's part of what the gospel of Jesus does. For you see, you are now about to hear the last words of Paul. You see, Paul is doing something in these three verses that I read to you that he hasn't really done in all of the rest of the letter. Paul allows the camera to pan to himself. You see, all of 2 Timothy, it's been about Timothy. It's been about the church. 
Timothy, you need to do this. Timothy, you need to do that. Timothy, don't do that. Timothy, don't do this. Timothy, you need to take care of these people in the church. You need to get rid of those people in the church. And Timothy, this is how you do it. And in these three verses, Paul finally takes the camera off of Timothy in the church and he allows for a brief moment the camera to shine upon himself as he is sitting in a jail cell, as he perhaps is chained to a prison guard, as he is awaiting his death sentence because he knows that he is on death row and he is not getting out of jail alive. Paul finally allows everything to pan to himself and we get a glimpse of Paul. We get a glimpse of the heart of Paul. We get the glimpse of the emotion of Paul and we get the glimpse of the hope of Paul that he has as he awaits on his deathbed. We get to see his final words because Paul already knows his sentence. For those of you who have a Bible, if you look at verse 16 in chapter 4, Paul says this. He goes, at my first defense, no one came to my support. He goes, I've already been in front of Emperor Nero. He goes, I've already seen him. I've already had my first trial. Things didn't go well. I already know what's going to happen. My sentence is sure. I'm going to be put to death. And so Paul knows that Emperor Nero is going to make the decree to cut off his head. Because that's what happens to Paul. They cut his head off. Paul knows this. He knows all of this. And he's just sitting there waiting because there's nothing he could do. Is this the day? Or will tomorrow be the day I lose my head? So let me ask you this. If you're in Paul's position, sitting on death row, knowing that death was upon you, what would you say about your life? Would it be, I'm innocent. Get me out of here. Timothy, come get me. I didn't do this. Would it be as you looked over the course of your life, would your legacy be one of fulfillment or regrets? That if you're on death row and you look back over your life, what would mark it? Fulfillment or regrets? Because Paul looks back over his life and you know what he says? He goes, I have no regrets. I lived a fulfilled life and I'm leaving a legacy of fulfillment to those behind me. You see, that is the present state for Paul because that's exactly what he's doing. See, Paul is looking at his present state and he's going, okay, this is it. This is, they're, they're, I'm not getting out of here. And so he tells us in verse 6, he goes, <clears throat> for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. So Paul, what do you mean by that, Paul? Well, <clears throat> a drink offering was a normal part of the Jewish sacrificial system and even part of the Roman sacrificial system if you, if you got into it. For the Jewish nation, this is what they would do. One of the sacrifices they would give is the burnt offering. All right, so everybody think of a barbecue. You good? All right, so when you think of a barbecue, it usually says like one piece of meat, right? Okay. Think of the whole animal, right? So you, they'd put the whole animal on the, on the barbecue, if you would, on the altar, and they're offering the whole thing up to the Lord. They're just going to burn the whole thing up to the Lord. So that is part of it. But what they would also do is on top of that burnt offering is they would take some flour and oil. Right? They'd mix it together, and then they'd put that on top. So picture this. You have barbecue and bread baking. 
right? Smells pretty good, right? I love barbecue. For those of you who know, finally got the grill going this week. I'm ready. So the barbecue is going. The bread is baking. And then the last part of their offering would be this. They would, right? Imagine this was a cup instead of a plastic water bottle. They take a cup of wine. And they would pour the whole cup on top of the offering or in front of the offering, right? They would pour it on the hot part of the offering, onto the fire. And so what happens when liquid meets heat? Boils, steam. And so the, the wine would boil off into the air and give off this sweet aroma. So you have barbecue going, you have bread going, and you, you have the smell of wine going up into the air. It was all part of their sacrificial system. It was them giving an offering to the Lord. And the drink offering was the very last part of the sacrifice. Paul goes, me, I am being poured out like a drink offering. What does he mean by that? What Paul is meaning by that is this. He goes, my whole life has been poured out to the Lord. My whole life has been a sacrifice to God. Because all of it, ever since Jesus met me on the road to, Emmaus, uh, to Damascus, because ever since that day and Jesus saved me, I've given my whole life over to Jesus. I have sacrificed everything for him. And now, me giving up my life, the shedding of my blood is going to be like that drink offering. It's going to be the last aspect of that offering that I pour out and give to God. I'm giving everything over to the Lord. One commentator says this. He goes, Paul looked at the chopping block as an altar to God that he was going to sacrifice his life on, and he was okay with it. He goes, I'm giving everything over to God. I'm not keeping one drop back at all. Because I've given God everything. Paul goes, I'm ready. He goes, I'm good. I've given everything that I have to Jesus and for Jesus because I know him and I trust him. And so I give him everything. And you and I, we read that. And we hear that. And we go, Paul must have been off his rocker. Because there's no way a person can await having their head chopped off and go, I'm good. I'm ready to give all of this over to Jesus. We think he's crazy. Well, he wasn't crazy. And how do we know that? It's because of what he says next. Paul looks at his present state, and he goes, you know what? I am already being poured out as a drink offering, but guess what? The time has come for my departure. Now, Paul is not talking about a flight out of Rome, okay? Many of you have gone on airplanes, right? And what do you do? You wait for your departure time, right? When it's your departure time, it's time for you to get on the plane and go somewhere, right? That's your departure time. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul uses that word departure to speak to his death. He calls his death a departure. He goes, I'm just going from one place to another. That's it. It's what the Christian hope is. We know that it's going to happen. We're going to go one place to another just because of Jesus. The world can't give you something like that because the world doesn't have a hope like that. It's only Jesus. The world goes, yeah, you die, and that's it. Nothing after that. Jesus goes, well, you die, and then you're with me. You put your faith and your trust in me. In my study this week, I found something really interesting. And so, you know, when I find something interesting, I give it to you. There's a tribe in Africa 
that, you know those remote tribes, right? No technology and things along those lines. There's a tribe in Africa that was Christianized, so they became Christians. And so when somebody died in their tribe, they would never say anything along the lines that they died or they passed away. They said they arrived. Said he arrived, she arrived. Because they looked at death in Christ arriving with God. They go, they arrived. What an amazing picture of that. That's an amazing stuff. But I want you to get that word departure. Because that word departure is a great word. In the Greek language, it's used in a couple different ways because that's how the Greeks use words. That word departure would be used for the unyoking of an animal. So if you don't know what a yoke is, it's the wooden thing that would go around the animal's neck, all right? And then uh, like a, a, a plow or something along those lines would be connected to that yoke. This word departure speaks to the unyoking of the animal. So it's taking the plow off of them. It's taking the wagon off of them. It would also be used for somebody in prison being released from their chains. It would also be used if to take down a tent. If you ever gone camping and you had a tent up, when you took the tent down, you could use the word departure because that's what it spoke to in the Greek culture. It was also used of, if you've ever seen a ship pull up anchors and set sail, the word departure is meant for that, the, the pulling up of anchors and the setting of sail of the, the ship. It's all great stuff, but you may not get the picture through it, though. Why does Paul use that word for, for death? Well, because it's this reason. Paul knew that his death was the unyoking from all the heavy, toilsome work and labor that he has done on this earth. He knew that his death was going to be the release of the chains that he was in right then and there, in jail. He was going to be released from all of that. Death is us taking down this tent, our bodies that we live in. See, this is just a temporary tent, our bodies. And you may not know this, but these tents, they make noises, they fall apart, they creak and they crack. And some of you are sitting in pain right now because of the tent that you have is not good, Right? Part of your tent is not good. The seams are coming undone. Guess what? You take that tent down and you go into something that is more permanent, that is everlasting. And then we lift anchor and we set sail from this harbor of life. And we set, set sail right into the harbor of God. I like how one writer puts it. He says, for the Christian, death is laying down all your burden, all your toil, all your labor in order to rest forever, forever. Death is laying aside all that binds and holds of sin and difficulty. Death is striking camp, as it were, to take up residence in a permanent place in an eternal home. And death is casting off the ropes which bind us to this world to sail into God's world where we live in his presence forever. Paul goes, my present state is I'm going to depart. It's time for me to go. I'm lifting up anchors and I'm setting sail to God. This body that has been beaten, that has been shipwrecked, is going to fall away. He goes, I'm getting a permanent home. He goes, I'm good. I'm good. He goes, that's my present state, Timothy. And I'm ready for it. And the reason that Paul can look at his present state with such a hope and with such a joy 
And with such an excitement and a peace to faith death is because of his past. Verse 7. Paul says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Notice how Paul writes there. He writes in the past tense. I have fought. I have finished. I have kept. Paul is looking back over his life right now. And one of the things I think we have stopped doing generally is listening to those who have gone before us. You know that. Generally speaking, as a culture, we don't listen and glean from those that are older than us, that have done life, that have lived life, that have learned through life. We're too busy finding people uh, uh, online that have never done anything and getting advice from them, right? I have four kids, okay? Four of them, okay? Pray for me, all right? They're all getting in the teenager age. Pray for me. You can pray for my wife too, right? And so... Who would you go, if you're, if you're just having your first child, who would you go to for advice? Somebody who's never had a child, or say my wife and I who have had four. Hopefully you say my wife and I because you want to know why. We've learned all these little things. The person who hasn't had a child, they know nothing about having a child, okay? And having a pet is different than having a child. That doesn't count, okay? At least in this year. But what we do as a culture is we find people that have never lived, that have never learned, have never walked through these things, go, what do they say about this? And then we take their information, and then when it blows up in our face, we go, huh, I wonder why. Paul, you got to picture this. Paul's roughly 60 to 70 years old. Now, for you and I, that's not old, old. But Paul lived a very hard life. He was beaten, he was flogged, he was shipwrecked three times. He had been in jail multiple times. He had people plot his murder where he's had to escape towns and cities. He has been naked. He has been cold. He has been hungry. One time they even tried murdering him, and it didn't succeed. And so Paul got up. Paul has lived a very, very hard, long life. And so Paul is sitting there going, listen to me. I've walked this path. I've gone through these things. And now I'm at the end of my journey, and I want you to hear these words from somebody who has gone through it. And what he says is this. I'm satisfied. He goes, I am dying a satisfied man. My life is full of fulfillment, not regrets. Well, how can you say that, Paul? How can you say you have no regrets? How can you say that you have fulfillment? Well, Paul's going to tell us that. He's going to tell us how he lived and leaves behind the legacy of fulfillment. There is no sense of unfulfillment in Paul over his life. How many of us can say that? That if we look back over our life right now, that there would be no sense of unfulfillment. I want to be able to say that. I don't want to look back over my life and go, I wasted my life. I didn't give my life to this. Or I held back on this or that. I just wasted it. I don't want to be able to say that. I want to say I have no regrets. I poured myself out for Jesus. And I left a legacy that was full, satisfying, and pointing to Jesus. 
And so Paul gives us three things that he did over his life that brought him to a place where he's facing death and he goes, I'm good. I have no regrets. And the first thing that Paul says is this. He goes, I have fought the good fight. Now you read that, as many people do, and you run with it and you talk about, oh, I fought the good fight. I just slapped my coworker in the back of the head yesterday. You know, all good fight. Ready? You know what that literally says? Paul says, I have agonized the agony. That's literally what Paul says in the Greek. I agonized the agony. Does that sound like fun to anybody? I didn't think so, right? Like Monday may be bad for you, but you didn't go, I agonized the agony today. But that's what Paul says. He goes, I have fought the good fight. I have agonized the agony. Very strong words there. That word fight or agony, depending on your Bible, it speaks to an athlete putting everything they have into what they're doing. All their energy, all their, uh, everything they have, they're just putting forth, laying it out in any way that they possibly can. Life is a battle. Life is not easy. Life will never be easy until Jesus makes it all new. Life and following Jesus is going to be a struggle. Life is going to bring you to a point where you need to take all that you have and pour it out. There are going to be wars and battles and struggles and difficulties and hardships. Those are all going to come and they're going to happen in the life of the person who is following Jesus even more. Because you are trying to follow Jesus in a world that hates Jesus, that ignores Jesus, that wants nothing to do with Jesus, and is going to battle against you on the sole fact that you're trying to follow Jesus. That's why Paul says it's a good fight or a noble fight. He goes, this is, he goes I fought this fight. I have fought to follow Jesus. In all the battles, in all the shipwrecks, in all the beatings, he goes, I fought through all of it. He goes, I didn't stop fighting. Because I didn't give up. Don't give up on Jesus. There are going to come things in your life, and I've been there, where you're going to want to give up on Jesus, and you don't think it's worth it. Because it's too hard, and it's too much of a struggle, and there's too much pain, and there's too much difficulty, and there's too much hardship. And that if you think, if you just give up, following Jesus, and you ignore Jesus, and you walk away from Jesus, everything is going to be fine. Maybe in the short term, but not in the long term. Because I can almost promise you that you'll look back on your life and regret it. Paul goes, I didn't do that. I'm dying satisfied in Christ, for Christ, because I kept fighting. I fought the fight. I didn't give up. And then he goes on to say this. He goes, I have finished the race. Paul loved sports, right? He really did. Paul uses sports analogies throughout his writing. Boxing, running, all different things. And Paul here uses running. He goes, I've finished the race. Paul looked at life and following Jesus as a race. And Paul goes, I finished it. Now, as you can tell by my body, I am a runner, okay? 
You can laugh, it's okay. I do not run, okay? I haven't ran in over 20 years. I try not to run. I think a steady jog is what I got in me right now. Even in football, I didn't run. That's why I was a lineman, because you only have to run for five seconds, right? The receiver is running for like 100 yards. <laughs> You're foolish. Run for five seconds and stop while the rest of the play goes on, right? So I don't run, right? But if I did run, I'd want to finish the race. You would probably want to finish the race. Paul goes, I finished. How do you not finish a race? You stop. You get distracted. Paul goes, I didn't do that. He goes, I finished it. Do you know that some people do not finish the race that they're running with Jesus? Do you know that many people don't even start their race to run with Jesus? Paul goes, I started it and I finished it. Paul goes, I can look at my life with no regrets, with a fulfillment, no sadness at missing out on something. He goes, because I finished the race with Jesus, I ran with him. You know how you finish the race? You stay focused on Jesus. You stay the course. You don't take your eyes off of Jesus. For so many, they get distracted. They lose sight of Jesus because they start to focus in on work. They start to focus in on comfort. They start to focus in on hobbies. I'm not saying they're, they're sinful or bad or shouldn't be done. But there's correct balance to things. But we get distracted. A pastor can even get distracted and not finish the race running with Jesus because they get distracted on ministry. That their focus becomes ministry and not Jesus. Paul goes, I, I finished the race. He goes, I, I didn't get distracted. I, I, I stayed on course. What about you? Has the fight been so hard that you've gotten off course? That you've lost sight of Jesus? that you stopped running? Paul goes, not me. He goes, I kept the course. I stayed the course. I finished the race. And because of that, I can look back over my life and he goes, I'm fulfilled. I have no regrets. I'm dying a satisfied man in Christ. And then thirdly, Paul goes this. He goes, I have kept the faith. He goes, I have kept the faith. Notice Paul does not say, I kept a faith. Yes, I know, I'm getting picky over words, but sometimes I have to do it. It doesn't say, I, kept, I have kept a faith. He goes, I have kept the faith. And there's a reason why he words that. Most people, I will tell you this, all people have a faith, even the atheist. Did you know that? Because even the person who says they do not have a religious faith, your faith is that you don't have a faith. That's your belief system. That's what you're trusting. Everybody has a faith. And what we live in a world where we go, you can have your faith and I can have my faith and everybody is one big happy family. Like in Barney. You know the song in Barney? Some of you, you'll remember it. You'll, have, you'll be singing Barney for the rest of the day now, right? Barney says we're one big happy family. And we all think, well, I have my faith and you have your faith. We're all big one happy family. And wrong. We're not one big happy family. You want to know why? Because if your faith is different than my faith, one of us has to be wrong. Because if you have two different faiths, they both can't be right. 
And people look at that as Christianity and all the different aspects of Christianity. And you got Jehovah's Witness, and you got Mormons, and you have Islam, and all these different things. You go, oh, we're just all one big happy family worshiping the same God. No, no, we're not. Not at all. And that's why Paul says, I have kept the faith and not of faith. Because I've told you this a couple of months ago, that when Paul uses the phrase the faith, he is talking about the scriptures. He's talking about the word of God. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He said, I have kept the faith. I have kept the truth of God, the God of the Bible. I've kept the truth of Jesus, the word of God, the scriptures. He goes, I have kept all of that. I have not run from it. I have not ignored it. Paul goes, since Jesus saved me that day so many years ago, I have stayed true to the truth of God's word, to the scriptures. I have stayed true to Jesus. I have not wandered. I have not left. I have stayed true. And I have kept the truth of the word of God. Paul tells us, you know how I can look at my present state and be good? It's because of my past. It's because of what death is for me, for somebody who's trusting in Jesus. It's a departure. He goes, I'm good because I look over my life and know that I've fought the fight. Paul's not saying he's perfect. He'd be the first person to admit that he was sinful. He actually says he's sinful in Romans. He goes, I'm not perfect. He goes, but in that I have fought the good fight. I've stayed the course and I have finished the race. He goes, I've done all of this. And because I've done those three things over a consistent period of my life, for over 30 years I've walked with Jesus, I can look back and go, you know what, I'm dying satisfied. Because every day I woke up and go, okay, Jesus, what do you want of me today? Jesus, will you get me through this today? Jesus, will you guide me? Will you direct me? Will you use me? Will you show me your truth? Will you allow me to give your truth? And that's what Paul did every single day. And it was hard and it was difficult and it was not fun some days. But some days Paul experienced the greatest joy somebody can have on the face of this planet. And so after 30 plus years of following Jesus, Paul goes, I'm satisfied. I have no regrets. Because I followed him. I stayed the course with him. I didn't live for myself. I didn't live for the world. I lived for the one that gave his life for me. Jesus. Because of that, I'm good. And then Paul tells us one more thing, and that's his future. And I'm only going to touch upon that this morning. Verse 8. Paul says, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me but also to all who have longed for his appearing. You know what Paul says there? He goes, well, look what lies ahead for me. He goes, the only thing left for me is a crown. Now, there's two types of crowns. There is the diadem, which was the royal crown, and then there is the stephanos. How many of you ever seen the old movies with the, the, the Olympic athletes and when they won, they didn't get gold, silver, and bronze, but they got this leafy crown on their head, right? right? That's the Stephanos. That's the victor's crown, right? It would die in like, what, two days? Right? Oh, great. I put in all that time and effort to train to win that event, and I got some leaves. Oh, happy for me, right? But it's the Stephanos, and that's what Paul is talking about there. He goes, there's a victor's crown for me. He goes, there's a crown of righteousness. 
that I'm going to get a crown of righteousness. Do you know that God rewards those that come to heaven? People don't realize that. It's not like heaven is, I don't care about the crown. All I am in heaven with Jesus, I'm good. But out of God's grace, because we don't deserve it, Scripture, the New Testament gives us about four or five different crowns that you can earn on this, in this life that God is going to give to you in heaven if you earn them. And you're not going to walk around wearing all these crowns. Look at my crown. You're literally going to lay them at the feet of Jesus. But Paul goes, I'm going to get the crown of righteousness. And he's not talking about a crown that came from his righteousness or anything that he did, but it's a crown of righteousness that comes from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul goes, I'm going to be rewarded in heaven. Like, not am I going to be with God for eternity? He's going to give me a crown. And he goes, this crown is not just for me, but anybody who longs for it, loves the coming of Jesus, goes, Jesus, come, I can't wait for you to come. I want to be with you, Jesus. Paul goes, that crown is in store for you too. He goes, so why, why should I have regrets? Why should I be unfulfilled? Why should I be afraid of death? I have a crown awaits me. I've lived a fulfilled life, a satisfying life with no regrets because I've followed Jesus Christ. He goes, my departure is here. My ship is going to set sail. And I'm going to be with God. And I'm so grateful. And I'm so thankful. Not many people live like that. Paul did. We can. What would you say if you were in Paul's shoes? What would be your last words? Would it be, it's too late for me, I blew it. I should have done this, I shouldn't have done that. Why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? Or would your last words be similar to Paul's? My, de my departure time has come. I have no regrets. I'm satisfied. I'm fulfilled. For many, they think it is too late to start writing the same story as Paul did. It's never too late. But the key in writing a story like Paul is for you not to be the author of your story. It's for Jesus to be the author of your story. Let today be the first day in your new story that you write by the grace of God that you invest your life for Christ not waste it for the world that maybe you finally start to fight the good fight that you get back into the race and that you keep the faith. You don't have to do it alone. We're here. God's here. Maybe you've never joined the race, got in the race. And you need to give your life to Jesus for that. Maybe you've gotten off course and you need to give your life back to Jesus, not for salvation, but to renew that relationship with him that you've already had, that you've just run from. Let today be that day. Because today could be the first page of the new book that you write. And that you could look over your life from this point on and go, you know what, I live for Jesus. I have no regrets. Because you can have the same similar words that Paul did on his deathbed. And die fulfilled because you followed Christ. Let us pray. Father God,
I thank you for Paul. I thank you for the work that you did in him, through him. Thank you for using him. But Jesus, you are the one that changed Paul's life. You're the one that encouraged him. You're the one that strengthened him. You're the one that used him. And I pray that today that we would glean from Paul, that we can have a fulfilled life, a satisfying life. And it is found in you, Jesus, and only in you, by following you, living for you, not wasting our lives, but investing it in you for your kingdom and for your glory. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd work in light of this. Use us for your kingdom, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.